everyone and um, welcome to tonight's MHTV. We've got another great um, evening tonight with um, Steve Trenchard, our guest tonight, talking about trauma-informed nursing and compassionate cultures. Nick is going to be covering the social media, so I'll just go over to Nikki first to let her tell you how you can join in tonight. Absolutely. So um, we're watching out on um, Facebook. So if you want to um, ask any questions at all, please post them in and we'll pass them back. And if you are following along on X, formerly known as Twitter, um, I still can't get used to it and I still don't like it. <laughs> so join me with them. Um, just follow the hashtag MHTV um, and we'll absolutely include your points of view. We'd love to hear from you. Back to Vanessa. One of the things that's interesting about tonight's conversation, I guess, is that you've had a really um, long and notable career, haven't you, in mental health, covering um, roles in, you know, director of nursing post, chief executive, um, academic roles as professor of mental health nursing. So I guess in your career, um, interested in maybe starting with some reflections, really, about those years. Have we, how have things changed? Have they improved Oh, thank you, and um, uh, it's great being here talking to uh, to you guys. Um, I, I think undoubtedly there have been some things that have improved and some things that haven't. So, mm. I, I, you know, if we think about the lessons that we can learn from history, let's go back a couple of hundred years. So I had the pleasure um, and some of the challenges of working at one of the oldest charities in the land, which was the retreat at York, which was which was developed on the back of um, a, a woman who had been abused at the local York Asylum, who when she was admitted from a Quaker background, she was within three months dead, a woman called Hannah Mills. And the Quakers collectively, they wanted to develop a new model of humane-centered care. Um, if we cycle forward and go into the early 20th century, 1900s, we've got the Hamwell Asylum with John Connolly, who was one of the medical superintendents who tried to challenge the, at that point, the evidence-based approach to putting people through water baths and stinging them from the ceiling and spinning them around in nets, you know, yeah. all that stuff. Um, he was eventually discharged and disbarred because he was, he was too, um, seen to be too forward thinking. And then if we go to the work of the 60s with Goffman and Barton, and then more latterly, we've got Winterbourne and, you know, the recent case of Greater Manchester um, in the mm -hmm. forensic service. So I think they have at an individual level and a therapy level. I think things haven't changed, but um, things have improved. But there are still, um, you know, the potent energy in psychiatric hospitals and mental health institutions means that things can quickly go wrong. Um, and maybe in a bit... We talk on that piece about compassionate leadership and the need for a constant focus on culture how we do things around here and there's something in that whole piece about how we look after one another mm. um one another how we're compassionate to ourselves um and more than kindness more than being empathic but that whole compassionate piece uh and yeah. when i derbyshire healthcare um nhs foundation trust Prior to starting as a chief executive, I did three-day workshop with Professor Paul Gilbert mm -hmm. um, and his thinking around compassion from an evolutionary perspective and the way he had developed his CBT model for understanding shame and understanding depression and understanding compassion as a model. And I just, I don't think we've really 
got to grips with that as a profession in terms of yeah. really understanding inhibitors and the protective factors mm. that stop um, that stop us from leaning in and being really close and, and attentive to people. Um, and yeah. It's understandable services are so busy. Um, but yeah, so I think there are some good things. I think the evidence based on psychosocial interventions in the 2000s was fantastic at challenging and tackling the poor outcomes for people with with um, serious mental health problems such as psychosis. I think all of the work around challenging um, our understanding of attachment disorders that we still call personality disorders that we really need to rename are important. Yeah. I think we've come some way in terms of having a stronger political, social political voice as a profession, but there's still some way to go. Um, I think that there are there's great opportunities in research around co-production and really um, if we take hearing voices as an example, you know, my other four day training before being the chief exec was to do some focused work with Marius Rom and the Hearing Voices Network looked at the Maastricht interview. And that was just fantastic. What a great trauma informed model for understanding how voices are heard and understood by people rather than falling into a you're hearing voices, therefore you've got psychosis, therefore you need meds. I, I am simplifying that process, but it still happens. I've got a friend yeah. who's in now to really understanding what do these voices mean and how do they link to your possible trauma history or yeah. even your, your just your history of you and, yeah. and how you, you know. Um, so I think there is still much to do, but there are some definitely things to, to be proud about and to congratulate ourselves yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting the hearing voices movement because um, I think Nikki, we probably started our careers at a fairly similar period. But you know, in the early nineties, um, certainly when I trained, it was very much that you were told don't talk to people about their voices because it's colluding with people. And we've really moved on from that, haven't we? Now to kind of really engaging with people, um, helping people to understand. And, 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 you know, thinking about people that I've supported in my career also, people who like sometimes have positive voices and um, people who talk about feeling lonely when the voices have gone. So voices are not always negative, are they either? So I think we have moved on quite a lot in our understanding. And it was interesting what you were saying about the history of nursing, because I often reflect on that. And I think mental health more than any other branch of nursing has a whole history around um around power and coercion doesn't it so I think that um that for me really links into why it's so important now that as part of our identity we are very much about you know giving a voice to other people and I think where the trauma-informed work is so important isn't it around um you know psychological safety and and trust and you know, working with people rather than doing things to people and, um, you know, certainly restrictive practice, which is still very much around, I think, although more covert probably than it used to be. Um, so, yeah, I would agree with you. It's quite mixed, really, isn't it? We have moved we have moved forwards, but in some ways, I think we've got a lot to do still. Um, and also, you comment about um, compassion, I think is really important because again if we're talking about history when I reflect back um you know I I became a nurse in an era when we didn't talk about our own mental health and it was almost as though you're a nurse now so you have a perfect family you don't have anyone who's ever experienced any mental health difficulties 
you've never experienced any mental health difficulties and you're just going to be caring for people who've experienced that, which, of course, was absolute nonsense. Um, and I think we have definitely shifted somewhat in that people are starting to talk more openly about their own mental health difficulties. And I think as part of that, we're kind of starting to acknowledge well-being more and compassion. Um, but again, I think it is complex because we still see a lot of burnout, don't we, in mental health nursing, I think. And I don't think people are, always realise, um, possibly until they move to a different area often, um, that they were burnt out during a period of um, practice, I think. And I think one of the fantastic developments is around peer support and, yeah, I and do. lived experience, not just of people who become peer support workers or lived experience practitioners, but also of nurses that are supported to be very open about their own lived experience. Um, I, you know, as a student working at Tudor Lloyd Hospital many moons ago, there was a particular award that was for professionals only, and it was for medical nursing professions from each of the different families, um, people from uh, religious backgrounds we had. It was, so it was a very specific uh, and specialist unit. Um, and most people worked on the assumption that you wouldn't work after this. So that, mm -hmm. that pessimism associated with mental mm -hmm. health one of the things that has really improved in terms of the openness that we have around mental health. But I think there's also some difficulties with that as well. You know, we live in a, going back to the the, the political stuff, we, we live in a neoliberal community mm. and where actually we still place the blame of illness or poor health on individuals and miss... Yeah association with what's what political decisions are making you know where where we've learned a lot from covid but we had some of the worst outcomes in the world from covid because of austerity yeah. that is a political decision we've got fewer mental health nurses because of austerity we've got fewer yeah. bed per hundred thousand because of austerity all because of political decisions that are taken and of course when you're working at the front end of care you need your leaders um, and they have to be political leaders as well as chief executives mm -hmm. and others articulating the reason why people still keep flowing into services despite a plethora of other services that might be around. Yeah. Take children's mental health. I mean, in the last year, uh, I've been working and set up a, a new hospital and we set up a new trauma-informed model. We called it the STEP model. Um, mm -hmm. So STEP was like three, the three legs of a stool. So first step was how we you the second one is how we work to help you recover and the third one was what you should experience and how you get better with us so you know systematic systems approach trauma-informed approaches yeah. emotional disorders in young people and positive behavioral support are all good evidence-based interventions that mm -hmm. our nmc says and our code says that we should be aware of and have be able to have those skills in those areas um the second step was around, you know, being providing structured care, um, providing trustworthy care. So everything we do is in a public domain. We have to demonstrate we're constantly trustworthy. For young people in services that have been traumatised, mm. they're looking to show that you are going to be non-trustworthy, like everybody else in their life has been. Um, yeah. You know, 
empowering and with the work that we do and absolutely person-centered and the person-centeredness i think often is misunderstood it's about the use of language for that person it's understanding their particular story and life events and how they like stuff so it's really at focus um and then the third you know model in us in the step model is about um the first thing you should feel as soon as you step through our door and in fact begin to think about us is safe and you mentioned this psychological mm -hmm. so safe in our services has to be the number one and there has to be a whole heap of work on what that means for the individual because you know um, yeah. safety very different for everybody um yeah. and then we've got therapeutic we have to be empowering and we want young people to make progress in the, in their services so that was a great attempt at bringing together a, a lot of experience from a very experienced mdt to think about a new trauma-informed pathway mm -hmm. uh, for for young people with eating disorders and complex needs um so i think there are some good examples out there um yeah. but you know if I think about NHS and culture, uh, I struggle to see real examples. Not only do we still not capture at a board level how many people are recovering our services, apart from the IAP measures, we still don't know that. Yeah, um, I agree with that. They're recovered, we don't know, we don't capture it. And any measures of compassion in leadership, mm. um, and you know, there are some really interesting ways that you can cultivate compassion at boards and then help it to feed down um, mm. the ways in which you can do that um, so yeah. I think still things that we talk about that we probably need to be a bit more braver in terms of an acting uh, that's one and one of the first things is about calling out poor behavior of course yeah yeah and I guess that is very true that we need to think about compassion as being far more than just um, providing that kind of care in response to somebody but also about um compassion and leadership people being able to speak out about poor practice and feel that they're psychologically again psychologically safe to do that and able to speak out and will be supported um yeah one of the key in paul gilbert's model one of the key elements of a compassionate framework is courage yeah so actually taking difficult decisions and doing as you've suggested speaking out about stuff is mm. compassion Themselves. yeah it's exactly. about, about courage to do that and people mm. often don't because of the the sense of toxicity or fear that it's, that sits in in some services um and there are small things i think around compassion you know we um one of the things i've i've done with boards is to you know go out on visits and and get teams to present but you're always asking how's it been in the last year and how how have you managed your resilience? How have you worked with each other as a team? And the stories you hear are fantastic. You know, Steve was unwell, so the team clubbed together and took him as casseroles for a week and baked him cakes and picked his kids up and did that sort of stuff. So it's, it's happening in organisations. We don't always capture it. So, um, you yeah. know, seeing how we do that, I think, is really, really, uh, really uh, important for boards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Nikki, did you want to come in at this point at all? Yeah, I'm starting to get questions through. Um, asking about compassionate leadership, there seems to be a couple here wanting to understand that concept a little bit more. Um, I won't necessarily read them up because I'm suggesting their management hasn't always been that compassionate, but um, perhaps, Steve, you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. I, I, I had um, the great 
uh, opportunity to work with Professor Paul Gilbert, who was at Derby. And, and interestingly enough, he he struggled to really get compassion into all of his services in Derbyshire healthcare. Um, he was mm. doing most than internal. And one of the first things that we we did was to there was a key message, which is if you want to develop compassionate models, it has to be from the ground upwards. You can't yeah. top down. Got to be from the ground upwards. So you've got to hear, listen, be visible, be present, understand the culture and what's going on in an organisation. We often talk about culture as though it's one thing, but of course, in an organisation, you've got as many cultures as there are teams. And in mm. a great piece of work that was done at Ashworth Hospital, then named Park Lane Hospital when I was a student. And on there, you had a three system shift pattern early mornings, lates and nights. And you would have very specific cultures dependent upon who was leading the team. And there was a great chap called Professor Joel Richmond that did a piece of... Oh. ...what was happening on the ground. As it comes back to my point about leadership, particularly team manager, you know, clinical leadership is absolutely crucial. I don't think we do enough to develop that tier of leadership. So um, Michael West has done some work more latterly, um, distinguished professor in organizational development and leadership. He's done some work um, on, on, on compassion. So take the model of compassion. It's a, you know, the definition of compassion is about um, noticing distress and having the motivation to act upon it. So it takes skills. Vanessa, you could be walking down the river and you it's running very quickly and you slip and fall in and I'm like, oh my yeah. god Vanessa's I before I know it I'm jumped in the water but I, I can't swim so I I'm, yeah. I might feel best actually I haven't got the skills to deal with it yeah. so there's some teaching people the the skills in being able to work compassionately and the, the person in care experiences that compassionate um, intent let's not forget that the evidence base around most of the therapies dbt cbt counseling supportive counseling supportive psychotherapies one of the key consistent issue issues is the way in which the person experiences the relationship so peplau hildegard mm. yeah. peplau is a here because the importance of that therapeutic relationship is absolutely critical in mental health nursing mm. it is, is the most powerful tool you have as well as your knowledge and attitudes, it's the most powerful tool you have to be able to work with people. Um, so for me, compassionate leadership is, it's about visibility. It's about a willingness to hear the very difficult things that go on. Um, we heard this week, didn't we, with the very, very tragic cases of the nurse that's just been um, charged with multiple murders of young yeah. babies. Yeah. The, the, that nurses and others didn't listen. It's rekindled the debate on whether nurses need to be registered and managed. Um, so there's something in there about, I think that the view that came through from the report into mid-staffs was, let's not be surprised when things go wrong. Don Warwick's work, you know, you've got mm -hmm. to be very, the possibility that things are going on under your very nose now. Um, yeah. and being open and willing to hear that from people. So I still hear of many people who are on national courses like the leadership courses and things who 
who are going into those spaces and are in tears for the first several days because of the level of stress and distress that they experience at work and that can't be right that has mm. to be shifted yeah no, definitely I just think it links to what we were saying earlier as well about othering people as well so I think that although it's more subtle now there is a sense I think that we still um place people in a different sort of category to us within mental health and the other thing I think and you know and I've heard clinicians say this as well um, you know, people are exposed to so much trauma within mental health work often, but sometimes it can reach a stage where it becomes too painful for people to listen and to and to be compassionate. And that's when you see people start to distance themselves almost as a, you know, a sort of safety mechanism, I guess, really, psychological safety mechanism. So I think... I completely agree. I think we have to understand that we we have a very, very old brain and a very new brain. So when I'm talking old, I'm talking millions of years, and newer, I'm talking several thousands of years. Yeah. In terms of, so if I'm threatened, my amygdala is going to be firing all over the place, and it's going to be sending mm-hmm. very powerful messages to my vagus nerve, through my vagus nerve to my gut, that's telling me to be on hyper alert and look around. Yeah. And it's very difficult to be compassionate and to lean in and to work with when you are under threat yourself and yeah. that goes and manages it goes from the the focus on performance management and performance systems it goes on the focus from checking numbers and data sheets and performance cards it goes um it's triggered by things like cqc experiences and and is it sort of paper and waiting that i'm still cogitating over about adverse leadership experiences so we have adverse childhood experiences we also have adverse leadership experiences things mm. will go but what we don't do is we don't learn from them yeah. um, I, I had experiences of being bullied as a chief exec um and you know there was a, a whole series of incidents that i was not expecting within three months yeah. of me starting to have happened you know mm. fast forward left me left left me leave and now this this is 10 years ago yeah. i still get loops over how on earth did that happen what went wrong how did it mm-hmm. what, what where did it go to yeah. it led to a referral to the nmc who completely cleared me of any wrongdoing external mm-hmm. investigation cleared me of any wrongdoing but i'd been incredibly traumatized by that experience yeah and- are lots of examples of senior leaders and middle leaders who will find themselves in situations where they just suddenly go wow what just happened you know Mm. and then if we had a really compassionate culture we would say these things will happen and we now got someone with a whole heap of experiences who can help others with these sorts of experiences but we move on and we brush it under the carpet and we we, we let it lie. And yeah. I think that's a game because, you know, we are missing out on all of that richness of lots yeah. of experience people have. Um, and when, as a collective, how are we then learning? I don't think we're not. I don't think we're learning effectively in that yeah. place. And we're not really practicing what our, we preach, are we? Because we're encouraging clinicians on the ground to be open and reflective and, you know, psychological in their thinking. 
And then at a senior level, we're saying, let's not talk about any of that. Let's brush it under the carpet. Also seems very male as well, very sort of paternalistic approach to leadership, doesn't it, as well? Um, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very. I remember when I was working at West London Mental Health Trust, I was a chief nurse there. And I'd done some work with um, with Marius and Pete Rom, uh, Marius Dom and Pete Bullamore previously. And I wanted, what I was noticing was that through our serious incident reports, people didn't have a good grasp on how to work with psychosis. I don't mean in a psychosocial managed process way, but yeah. just think creatively out of the box on how you understand unusual experiences that people come into services with. And more importantly, we had a large contingent in West London of people who had come from as refugees from really tricky, dangerous war zones. And we had a couple of incidents where, with my reading of the reports, it was clear that people had been heavily traumatized and were being re-triggered by what we were doing in the services. Um, mm really seen it was we need to give more medication and stop the clozapine and that's why we missed this opportunity and sadly the person mm. died and so anyway I, I i worked i circulated a lot of the gray literature around the hearing voices network um including the bps report on understanding psychosis the, the first report um and i had a message back from the then clinical director who was the um the sort of chief medical director for broadmoor saying is this for real and I remember a long conversation with my then deputy director Nathan, and I said just it's okay um this is a view and we need to see what the culture is saying about it so it was really interesting over the weekend there were lots of other then discussions with other doctors and other senior nurses um and we we did the training we did the master training and a couple of months later I was in the therapy center in Broadmoor and there was a guy who would one of the nurses had gone back and started working with the voices they heard. And he said, you know, if someone had done this when I was on my first acute admission, I wouldn't have gone on the pathway to low, medium, high secure services. Yeah. I understand, but now I understand my journey. And one of the simple things that we used to do in psychosocial intervention training was a timeline that sort of told who are you and what's your story? Yeah. And who are you and what's your story in relation to mental health? And who are you and what's your story in relation to adversity? And it's really mm-hmm. interesting lens at which you look through will give you a really different view on that person's perspective. And and again, I remember a fantastic OT who worked in Leeds, um, had been working with someone in the 30s and went back to the childhood experiences and they'd lost their, one of their grandparents, um, very, very important um, person to him when he was 16, started to hear the grandparents parents voice um started smelling some things that like you know and i've had this experience myself i've you know my granddad died i could smell his pipe yeah um, i have quite a broad framework for understanding sort of you know spiritual um frameworks and things and i was quite comforted by the idea that my granddad was following me around smoking yeah. his pipe um this phenomenon was uncovered and the guy within 12 months was off his antipsychotic medication and back in employment and making full recovery. He'd sort of managed to step away from this identity of someone with schizophrenia into yeah. someone with a trauma, early age, mm-hmm. and dealt with it. And now... Define him, that, yeah, forever. It, yeah. So I think there's something about 
trauma-informed approaches don't have to be super fancy. Mm. Um, to, uh, they require a way of thinking about people's experiences and what that means in terms of attachment, resilience, shame, really important one. Yeah. Um, social networks, really important one. But also recognising that, you know, the public health data around adverse childhood experiences, they, they have a dose effect. So if you're exposed to three, four or five of those, you are incredibly more have you have a greater latent vulnerability think about the stress vulnerability model you have a greater latent vulnerability to experience the conditions um that we call uh, or the experiences that we call mental illness so mm. i i back to think to that sort of how do we understand people's experiences what's the model that we use yeah it's interesting because i have kindness kind of underpin underpins all of this like compassion mm -hmm. and empathy and things that yeah. you would think that we would be better at than we <laughs> seem to be as a as a whole. And Dave's drawn my attention to um, a new GMC document. Um, and it has treating colleagues with kindness, courtesy, and respect. And that seems to have, have unleashed a bit of a of a we can't say twit storm anymore, an X storm. <laughs> um, there's been a mention of kindness, and some doctors and commentators are pushing back against kindness being included in the new GMC document, Good Medical Practice. Um, the commentary, some of the comments are things like um, in the current climate and um, post uh, serial killer, broader NHS chaos, their proposed new duty of be kind is particularly crass bit of simpering. So where do you think this anger is coming from? What, what's the what's the meaning of it, do you think? Mm. Yeah, I think there's, it's probably multi-layered. Um, I think the kindness piece is misunderstood. Um, so it, it was a bit like post the post Francis de Paul. Um, of course, we want kindness, but kindness is different to compassion. Um, so I, I would prefer compassion always to be used over kindness. But I yeah. think if you if you look at the book by Penelope Campling and Jonathan Hallett around intelligent kindness, it's called Intelligent yeah. Kindness, came out somewhere around 2012, I think. A brilliant yeah. expose so the psychodynamic view of organizations and how the nurse or a team can be at the center of an organization if you what you want is an organization that's based on sense of community and a sense of kinship mm -hmm. a sense of knowing if you get an organization that's based more on chasing numbers chasing targets you, you, people will become anxious become distressed will dissociate and care will become brutal and that's yeah. the piece I said about don't be surprised when we have serious incidents and organisational failure. Not in, not as a let's not be surprised and be complacent, but let's really understand the way in which our healthcare organisations have the propensity, as shown over a few hundred years, to be brutal and brutalising places. Yeah. I think the other thing is that um, the work on on education for doctors and also for nurses shows that the process of education in itself can be a bit brutalizing and cannot really live up to the values and it used to really upset me when we'd have fantastic nurses that would graduate after four years at Leeds Met and within six months had left the profession to become drug reps or you know work yeah. in the corner because there was something about the culture that they entered just it wasn't what they expected um, and there's often a disconnect between 
the values that we have as individuals and then the values that we believe the organization to have and that comes down to that psychological contract and that psychological safety piece um i, I also think um doctors as our lead, one of our lead professions are cross and angry with with austerity they're cross and angry with the pay deal they're cross and angry with the number of people that they died they're cross with some parts of the public because the hand clapping really didn't go as far as it needed to or as far as it could have done should i say mm -hmm. they're cross with you know politicians who flouted the rules that they themselves followed and, and all of us followed i think pretty diligently so i think there is an unrest that's about um yeah, and yeah. so i'm surprised by that storm that's being that's come from that mm. yeah it's interesting because it's almost like um kindness can be seen as oppressive in some ways that you know you've just got to kind of be kind and carry on kind of thing um and I, and I think that is where some of the backlash is around that you know nurses have been kind nurses have been caring but actually the sort of damage to to nurses and and actually we've had previous episodes haven't we talking about moral injury as well particularly during covid i think um and i think that links very much to the um you know debate on compassion really because if people are exposed to you know moral injury and psychological trauma over and over again and they feel that they're not being supported then of course you know people are not going to be compassionate because it's a self-protective mechanism isn't it but then again what happens is then nurses will be further punished for being burnt out and not being compassionate rather than actually looking at the systemic reasons that you know that have led that have led to that really which goes back to what you were saying about leadership really well i i was um i was doing a little bit of reading and watching stuff around and there's a great link on i must congratulate liverpool cam service liverpool cam service has got some stuff on adverse child experiences and there's a there's a spoken word piece that starts at the beginning of it and they mention compassion they they say seeing so this is from the views of a young child seeing genuine compassion given unselfishly giving hope by an adult to help me be me and i, I was thinking you know the whole evidence base around a regular adult in a young person's life particularly one who ends up in the care system has shown to be an incredibly potent protective factor well i think there are other potent factors that can carry on because actually you don't stop losing your trauma just when you become an adult when you turn 18 you know it carries yeah. on it can be re-triggered so yeah. my trauma of being bullied at school was re-triggered massively when i had the shame of being associated with the bad behaviour of a bullying chairman, massively. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I think about actually helping people, and I just, this comes back to the educational piece for, for all the professional groups, but helping us understand our reasons for coming into the profession, the things that we're proud about and the things that we want to take with us through our profession. Um, but also, you know, that the, I think there's a challenge here so seeing genuine compassion given unselfishly gives hope by an adult to help me be me i think nurses need help at all levels from leaders from colleagues to help them be them to help me yeah. be me you know so there's something about what is what does that team look like so if you if we begin to pull out bits of research so len bowers research on safe awards yeah stuff. Oh, brilliant yeah 
seeing the nurse team at the beginning of the shift, recognising they've had a bad night before, recognising they're worried about a particular yeah. person, shouts at them and they find it difficult, they find it abusive. So on, it's yeah. like, you know, helping them. The, the, the senior matron that comes on or the clinical lead that comes on, the support that they offer in order to help that team be the best they can be. Then yeah. up to the next level and so on and so forth. You know, when when we used to invite people, when I used to invite our teams to our boards, we used to do a regular, you know, I used to say, look, the things that keep you awake at night are the things that keep me awake as a director and nurse and a chief exec. Because mm. you know, you're worried about, about patient care, as am I. You're worried about people and recruitment, as am I. You're worried about your finances, as am I. But I never put foot finances at the foreground. That was always in the background. So, mm. you know, it's a shared endeavour. It's about healthcare. Yeah. It's about positivity and, and hopefully, you know, recovery-based experiences for people. But um, so I think there's something about how do we cultivate communities of leadership in organisations where mm. people know to go and talk freely about stuff. Schwartzrand is a great example of where that's been attempted. Um, mm. Needs to be more routinized in the way in which the organisation itself is set up. Yeah. That's about leaders being visible though, isn't it, as well, I think, and, and accessible because, you know, I think it's often still a kind of hierarchical mindset. So I've always loved, you know, communities of practice um, as a methodology for, you know, handing back, um, you know, to, to the people who've got the expertise, really, the clinicians, and letting them, you know, um, find solutions to sort of intractable problems because often that doesn't happen I think there's a there's a bit of a hierarchical mindset so we think yeah of course you know talk to a leader and but actually if you're a newly qualified nurse you're not necessarily going to have the confidence to go and talk to a senior leader because what you've learned is that you, you're not allowed to go and talk to somebody more senior you need to talk to your own leader first and then often issues are quashed aren't they at that level so it's um yeah I think it's very social, difficult isn't it, for yeah, people social like, as a change approach social movements i think are really interesting yeah um, back in the day when early intervention services were just a twinkle in the in the policy implementation guidelines i um you know we use social movement methodology to bring people together and and cultivate their own practice their own outcomes their own work their own programs of activity it wasn't centralized mm. we came on a few monthly basis some people but we provided some structure and we sort of said look the ground's a bit like you know what where you're working we're going to put some sunlight on it and we're going to put mm -hmm. a little bubble around it, cultivate it the cultivation was through people's passion yeah um, definitely I, I, in the top down i you know as a member of NIME at the time I didn't say you must do this by when and this is your gantt mm -hmm. chart please follow it which is a lot of what transformation now is about it was okay yeah where do you want to go with this and how do you see it? Here's the evidence base. How is this going to work for your community? Yeah. How does this work for your population? What data do you need to do that? So a really bottom-up grounded approach, I think, is much, much healthier than top-down. Yeah. I quite agree. Yeah. Most top-down information fails abysmally and spends millions mm -hmm. of pounds. Yeah. Yeah, for all the reasons that we just talked about, really. Yeah. Because we're asking people to do things in kind of with very limited resources um 
you know, we need to win people's hearts and minds over, don't we? People need to be connected to the issue and the purpose of of what they're doing. And I think by not engaging people in in any transformation, that's where it tends to go wrong. So I think engagement is often seen as we haven't got time to do the engagement. We need to move straight into what's the new model we're developing, when are we going to deliver it? But actually, if you spend, I've always thought, if you spend that time in, with, on engagement and building relationships, then you're going to have a more sustainable model in the long run. So, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And um, guys, I'm just looking at the time. <laughs> We've covered career leadership, trauma informed care, compassionate yeah. cultures, learning from history, evidence based of mental health nursing, ACEs, <laughs> models for distress, hearing yeah. voices. And I think maybe we need to take a breather. <laughs> <laughs> we've worked through some really major major issues i've been really interested as well about thinking about kind of kindness and how it can be quite triggering for people how it can make people really angry when it's offered as the only solution to stuff that's systemic and i think you both made that point really well i guess we need to start thinking about if there's anything that we want to say before we finish up tonight vanessa is anything from you yeah no, I mean, I, I think that um, I was just thinking about what we can celebrate because we've, you know, we've kind of, we've talked quite critically, haven't we? But I think what I feel at the moment is that there is a bit of a shift in, you know, like the Mental Health Deserves Better campaign, the sort of relational manifesto. I don't know if you've seen that, the Royal College of Psychiatrists are promoting. So I do think there's a, a bit of a sea change at the minute where there is a group of us who are kind of, thinking about actually what's what's mental health nursing about and kind of trying mm. to refocus ourselves on the therapeutic relationship and you know what's unique about mental health nursing the thing about mental health nurses that I think is positive is that we do tend to kind of come together over issues and you know I think on the whole we generally have quite strong identities in terms of what we think mental health nurses are about so I think on a positive it's been good to see the way the mental health community um, has started to come together a little bit recently to kind of try and reclaim back some of what mental health nursing is about so that's that's my reflection. Steve? Yeah I think there's something about um wherever you are whatever level in your organization you're working whether you're a student nurse or whether you're a director nurse and you have an opportunity to use everyday interactions to demonstrate compassion mm. so in the number one challenge for imrock which is the implementing recovery and overcoming organizational challenges the number one is to use those day-to-day -day interactions to support recovery conversations and demonstrate yeah. that you are true I think the same applies for for the way in which we frame our emails, the way in mm -hmm. which we talk to people, um, and particularly the more senior you get, there's something about your non-verbals and your verbal, the language you use, has the one one very wise chief exec once sort of described to me that um, when you as you become more senior, when you speak, it's a bit like dropping uh, a stone in the mill pond has a big splash when you're junior it's a bit like stopping a dropping a stone in an ocean hardly anyone notices that's how that's how yeah, important your interaction so um I, I just think i think there's a great opportunity to really dig into what we understand by 
compassion and that whole leadership and but more importantly the practice piece and practice on ourselves we you know we are our most vulnerable and long-lasting patient for ourselves you can use that term you know so mm. being patient with ourselves and then looking after ourselves is going to mean we're better able to be in the game longer looking after other people so i think yeah. that would be my yeah it's a nice enough yeah, while form changes and ICBs change and ICS has changed and stuff, people are people. Yeah. yeah. Haven't really mm -hmm. changed. We won't see significant biological changes in our next thousand years as a people. Um, we'll see biomechanics and all that sort of stuff happen. But in terms mm -hmm. of our and how we work, the importance of emotionality, I think, is absolutely critical. Yeah. Good note to finish on there, I think. Yeah. Thank you very much, Steve, for your time. I've got loads of things that are buzzing around in my head now that I know I'll be thinking about, so <laughs> appreciate that. Um, and also lovely to see Vanessa. Um, Dave, I've just spoken to off offline and he hasn't got anything to add. So other than to wish everybody a very good night. Um, thank you for your time. It's been lovely to have you with yeah. us. Good night. Yeah. Good night. Yeah.